it is the pink elephant theory. If the guest wants a pink elephant, get them a pink elephant. If you can't find a pink elephant, get a horse, paint it pink, convince the guest that's an elephant. Do whatever it takes to ensure they're happy. That's it. Are they happy? We are back. Chris Adams here with you on the pink elephant. And, you know, it's a special week this week as I have a, an old friend. Um, I tell you, this guy, when you hear the stories he has uh, from around the globe, it's going to be a, a fun few minutes that we get to hang out together. Chef Reiner is with us, uh, the principal founder of, hey. of HKB Designs. Um, man, good to see you. Good to see you, man. It's a pleasure and thanks for having me. You know, we've we've known each other for a while. We've worked together for many years. And um, ironically enough, our paths continue to stay intertwined um, throughout the years. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what happens when you're, you know, groomed and grown in the Ritz-Carlton world like we were. And uh, it's funny that, that a lot of my, my connections uh, made over the years with Ritz-Carlton are yielding success today in business right because you stay connected and and it's a certain philosophy uh that that sort of kept us all in the same direction so uh, it, yeah. it's good to see right i know and you know it's crazy because even to this day i can tell you you know my company i know yours is the same there's so much of those principles that were ingrained in me as a kid that we, I still live by and believe my core um, to this day. So it's uh, interesting to see how that doesn't leave you. No, it doesn't. And, and I think, you know, it, it, take, it always took everybody about a year to understand the message and the, the true philosophy behind it. And, and it took a year for everybody to understand that it actually works and there's, there's a reason and purpose to it. And, and uh, you know, the first thing I did when I set up my company, I said, so what's our mission and what's our vision? Yeah. Uh, and that's something that's like, if you talk to other people who set up companies, they're like, what are you talking about? So I, I do this. And I said, well, <laughs> that's maybe not enough. <laughs> you yeah. got to have a greater purpose in life than, than just, you know, making omelets or something. Literally had my credo card. I had my credo card out. I think in the early days of EAG, trying to figure out what's my credo card going to look like. Um, yeah, yeah. Talking about that, and, and obviously Ritz Carlton, we have a connection there, and we'll get into that. But if you can give a snapshot to those that are listening or watching, of I mean, your career has been it's incredible knowing your background and, and everything you've been able to do and accomplish. If you can give a, I know that'll be tough, but a snapshot of kind of how did you get to where we are today. Snapshot is tough, correct. 43 years in the 20 seconds, right? So, <laughs> uh, born and raised in Germany, grown up in a pub. My parents had a pub, what you would call a gastro pub today, over here making schnitzels and, and, and frikadellen, which is a little like a hamburger patty type thing. And um, growing up there, pouring beers at 12 years old, right? Uh, Pre-positioned a little bit here. Um, cook apprenticeship in Germany and then packed my bags and left and uh, started off in, in uh, Frankfurt at the Intercontinental, moved to London, to an Intercontinental, moved to a three mission star restaurant in London, just kept trying to improve and grow my career um, exponentially each time with each move, right? And always stayed in the luxury area, never veered off the, the luxury, be it hotel or be it restaurant, right? So Michelin star restaurant or five-star deluxe hotel. And uh, subsequently, I figured out that hotels is probably what I prefer over restaurants um, and stayed in hotels and then moved to America, uh, did a quick stint in Chicago at the Drake and then uh, moved over to Asia and, and, and started at the Kowloon Shangri-La as a as a chef de cuisine uh, for a French restaurant, and then really trying to, you know, just figuring out what can I learn? How can I learn? How can I learn more? Um, and with that, kept moving through different places in Asia, subsequently becoming uh, executive chef at the opening of a Sheraton brand, Sukhumvit, a new brand at the time. I wanted to be established as their luxury segment. Um, 
brand and then moved to Mandarin Royal to Kuala Lumpur, executive chef, followed in Singapore, and then by accident ended up in Cancun, um, executive chef, food and beverage director up in Toronto at the Ritz-Carlton, um, and then corporate chef globally, Ritz-Carlton for six years, and then four and a half years of uh, Marriott Luxury Brands globally, VP culinary, overseeing strategy, new build, design development, all that fun stuff, right? So, so really taking um, the idea of operations to the development side and making sure that whatever was being built made sense in an ops perspective, right? Which helps me today, which then transitioned into my own business and I'd say, okay, what am I good at? What do I like to do? Um, uh, and, and where can I add value to the conversation? And all what we do is really stuff that I did in my corporate role, I did previously, and I think I can add perspective or value to a potential client, right? Well, I think that's been proven, right? I mean, you, you since yeah, you yeah, launched your own thing, I mean, you've blown up. Um, and so obviously the value that you're adding is there. Um, I mean, that transition from being- but it's, I, think, I, think what's inter- I think what's interesting, what I find interesting after speaking to different people is, is a lot of people don't take the time and crystallize the vision and mission and then crystallize what are they good at, what, what, where they add value and understand truly where they can add value. Yeah. And they, they play all over the place or they play all over the, uh, try to play in many, many different fields. And, and really, ultimately, the goal is to just do what you're good at, right? Just, just don't, don't, don't pretend you're good at everything. Do, do what you're good at, add value to where you can. And, uh, and, and eventually people will recognize the fact that you add value to them or to their organization or to their project or to their whatever, right? So, so I think that's really where, where the success uh, is compounding and it, it's growing in leaps and bounds, which, which is good to see, right? And now it's word of mouth versus me chasing potential clients, right? So it's yeah. somebody saying, hey, I can, can you do this? Can you do that, right? So, but it's all co- accumulative, right? If you look at my career path, everything has been the result of what I did before. Yeah. I got a job because I did another job. I got a better job because I did another. And, and I've always stayed focused on, you know, the old Ritz-Carlton, Horst Schultz thing, staying within excellence, right? Do your stuff as good as you can and be honest and open and come transparent about it and say, no, if you can't, or, hey, I don't know, it's okay, right? And a lot of people don't do that, right? I think, and I think that's where some of the value lies as well, right? So. Yeah, just focus on being great. Um, you know, don't try and be everything to excellent. Deliver excellence. Get up every day and try to deliver excellence and try to deliver it a little bit better than you did yesterday. How was the transition? Um, you know, it's easy. I think it's easy now as your company has found just, you know, immense success doing this. But the transition from leaving um, something that that you knew as well, if not better than anyone, a brand that I, I think all of us deeply care about, um, the transition from that to doing your own thing. How difficult was that for you? I don't... You know, in the beginning, because of the situation, it was forced, right? Because it was COVID, uh, the, the, the company offered early retirement packages or early uh, exit packages. And, and I sort of said, you know what, there is probably less focus on my area of expertise within the organization moving forward over the next couple of years. Uh, maybe I should just walk away and retire. And, and, and financially, we're in a position to do so, uh, et cetera. And then after about three days, my wife said, hmm, you're going to drive some crazy. <laughs> Not a good idea. Go to your little office and figure out what you want to do. So, so it was never really a, sh- it, it was a shock for a moment that you, that you re- wanted to retire and get your head around that. But at the same time, I always knew there's going to be a moment where 
all of this will have to stop, right? So uh, by no means, uh, um, I think it just forced me to think it through quicker than I would have done otherwise. Sure. Uh, it, probably, it probably accelerated my thought process by two years. And then once I, having the benefit of, of, of being in a financial situation that you don't have to worry about your next paycheck, gave me a certain um, cushion, a certain tranquility, a certain, you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. just, it, it didn't put any pressure on me to do, be successful. Or to do it tomorrow, although I did it tomorrow. <laughs> I, I launched my, I think my last, the official day was the 14th of August and HKB was launched on the 22nd of August. So, uh, but because I had three or four months previously, time to think, put a website together, put my thoughts on paper, crystallize what I think I'm good at. So I took those, those COVID times and, and really made good use of that time to think. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's why it wasn't ever scary in any shape or form. Um, and the network that I have been able to build over the last 10 years prior truly helped me getting very, very quickly uh, job offers of different types of gigs, right? And, and so it wasn't really a big sort of over move on like yeah. impact whatever it was almost like hey let's try this if it works cool if it doesn't yeah. i drink more tequila and it's all good right so yeah it doesn't really matter right yeah. uh, and and I've, that's a fortunate and and unique position to be in right one one has to realize that right it's not it's not common no it's to, not to and i that. think it's interesting too because you know you stepped away, you just said in, you know, at that time, and I remember we, we were on a lot of calls together at that time, trying to figure out what's the next move. Yeah. And, um, nice. everyone assumed the assumption was, okay, the luxury segment's going to crash and burn coming out of this. Oh my God, shut the world down in luxury. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think the exact opposite is actually what's taken place. Actually, you know, I, I, I was on a podcast right early in, into COVID and I said, my projections and my predictions uh, at that podcast and everything I said two months into the pandemic came true, right? Uh, and I said, luxury will be the first segment back. And because the guy or the girl that has a billion dollars in a bank might lose 200 million, they still have 800 million in the bank. They're not going to change their behavior or their pattern or their dislike or like for something. Yeah. They still want to go away. And, and you saw that immediately. Uh, Mexico opened up right away, right? They said, okay, that's the only country people could go and, and hang out on the beach with some restrictions, but it was sold out, right? And rates were going through the roof. And, and everything that for the hotel industry, the restaurant industry, a different conversation, right? Was a lot more complicated in the restaurant side of the, the, the business, right? But in the hotel side of the business, everything that I said came through. And I said, the other thing I said was that in the COVID, just like in any other historical situation, it will be a V-shape will be a reshape and it might be six months, eight months, nine months, 10 months, who knows, right? Nobody knew, but it will be a V-shape. And what did we see, right? We, we, we're seeing more than a V-shape. We're seeing a straight curve up, right? So um, development slowed down a little bit. Yeah, that's okay. Um, but it's always slowed down at, at the financial crisis in Asia in 96, 95, 96, 97, uh, swine flu, 9-11, uh, I think 9-11 was the one that took a lot longer to recover because there was a little bit more fear yeah. on a long-term perspective, yeah. right? More uncertainty, for sure. Yeah, because it was affecting everybody. So, so I, think, I think that was, uh, it was interesting and it still is interesting. Yeah. And people didn't listen. I, I tell you, you know, living in that, 
that segment of luxury, it's been very interesting, one, to see it bounce back how it has, but also to see how it is continuing to evolve and shift because, uh, you know, the going into labor, right? We talk about the, the labor market and the fact that um, it is a different world now. The labor models that we have at these hotels is not even remotely close to when I was on property. Um, yet the expectations is probably higher than they've ever been before. So it's been very interesting on our side. And I know for yours as well to say, how do we deliver an even more incredible experience for the, for the guests, for the consumer with less people to do it that have less training that's been put in place. They have, um, their backgrounds of, of how they were raised in the industry is not the same as it was when we were on property. They're getting thrown into positions way earlier than we typically would, would recommend yet. We still have to deliver at a high level. Um, it is, it is an interesting time to say the least, at least that's, that's what I'm seeing. No. And I think, you know, this is something that has been coming for a long time and particularly in the Western world, right? There are still countries in the Eastern uh, Asia, et cetera, Middle East, where labor is less of a conversation, yeah. right? Um, if you look at the Western world, however, labor has been a conversation for the last 10, 15 years. And I, in my previous role, when I spoke to the culinarians, I, I would encourage the culinarians at the time and say, guys, you gotta get ready to change your chip. You gotta get ready to change your approach and embrace food technology, uh, food manufacturing, and equipment technology to help you where it makes the most impact on quality or cost or time of delivery or skill level, right? And, and, and fortunately, we are living in a time today where both technology has tremendously improved. Um, Food manufacturing, quality of food manufacturing has tremendously improved. And you just need to sit down and become even more of a business person in your approach and think this stuff through, right? And what we're seeing, I think, is the people who do this really well continue to be successful. And the people who are not doing this very well fall off the bandwagon. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that we're working through on our side to piggyback on what you're saying is the fact that when I look at and I'm talking to um, executives, whether it's at Marriott or, or one of the other big brands out there, and they start looking at their markets and they go, hey, how come in the Americas we're not performing like we are in Asia? And I go, well, guys, I mean, we're not really comparing apples to apples here. And so in, but for a lot of them, it's merely they're looking at scores, right? They're pulling out numbers and they go, these numbers yeah, yeah. are number, yeah. better. And you're like, well, I hear you, but I think if we don't change the approach of how we execute here, you're never going to get those type of results because you're not comparing apples to apples. It's, it's not the same um, business model. And it's never been. And, and by the way, it's yeah. not been, right? It, it, it hasn't been. I mean, I worked in Asia 13 years. I, this, I think, is sort of give you a little indication, right? So I left opening the Fullerton Hotel with the latest technology in food production, uh, displays, uh, buffets, blah, 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 right? And then I came to Mexico and I walked in there. I'm like, what is this? This is like straight, straight from the 80s, right? Or straight from the 70s. Um, because nobody ever challenged or nobody ever updated and nobody ever uh, looked at technology and, and stuff like this, right? So uh, I just came back from a project in Punta Cana um, looking at a, a big installation there. And it's like, it's like being back in the 80s, right? No, nobody, you know, uh, well, we're having all these problems. I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're having all these problems because your team doesn't even get a chance to deliver because the tools that they have aren't adequate for the job any longer. It's outgrown itself, right? Um, and I think that's the challenge. People don't understand that. Like you said, they look at the scorecard and they say, hey, and, you know, Abu Dhabi is delivering this. Or they say, yeah, well, in Abu Dhabi, I can 
if I need 200 more people, I make a phone call and in a week I have 200 more people. Yeah. It's a different world. That's simple as that. Yeah. Um, and and I, I want to transition really quick because we were on a, a project together recently and it's one that, um, interesting project slash, um, it was just different outside the box uh, altogether. Unique. Um, yeah, it's a great way. Of, it's unique. unique. Um, and I'm talking about the, the Ritz Carlton yacht. Um, Very unique. It was, you know, f- coming from Ritz Carlton and, uh, you know, still bleeding cobalt blue. Um, and then walking into to that, which is you're trying to recreate um, the, the Ritz Carlton feeling yeah. um, on a yacht. And, and doing it in a way that it was very, uh, it was a, it was very different than I anticipated. Um, and I think those are things we're, we're still, I think still working through to figure out how do we translate what we do, um, on land onto, onto the yacht, how you were, you've been a part of that project for, for even longer than I, how has that been? Eight years, eight, eight years. Right. So. I was there at the original kickoff meeting, um, and and I think throughout the years, been part of many discussions. What can be done? What can't be done? How is it translating to the the, the you know the water, uh, so to speak, and and how does that work? Right? And really, I think the philosophy translates, as we know, everywhere. Right? The the, the credo, the philosophy. Etc. Everything translates no matter where you go in the world. You just have to have a system in place that won't accept that it's not being lived. Right? And if and if you guarantee that, ultimately you will find success. Because the credo and the mission and this vision is so strong that it will translate to, to this. The the uniqueness of this particular project is in logistics, both in procurement as well as in uh, labor. Although you can get labor, you can't get more labor than you have beds. Yeah. Well, the other thing with labor that was interesting for me, and you said this at the the beginning of this conversation, you said typically with Ritz-Carlton, it was about a year, and then people was like, okay, it clicks. Well, when you look at uh, in, in that world, it's constantly changing. You, they sign these contracts for X amounts at a time, and then they're off onto the next thing. So you're trying to shrink the audience. So, so the goal here, I think, is on a, from a strategy perspective, is how do you make sure as many of the ladies and gentlemen that are on contract come back on a new contract? Yeah. Right? And the more you can guarantee that, and the more you can pepper your leadership with season Ritz Carlton leaders, um, and make sure they come back. The, in the long run, this will develop into a philosophy stronghold that will be delivered, right? Uh, and I think right now, just one ship is a little bit of a challenge, but next year with the second ship, and then subsequently a year later, a third ship, you have enough bench strength that moves between ships it will create its own culture base that will allow to to continue to deliver that philosophy that Ritz Carlton service and stuff like that. But and and I believe that the Ritz Carlton yacht team, the uh, Marriott, the Ritz Carlton leadership center, everybody is extremely zoomed in on the fact that the hiring process the rehiring, the continuity of, of, of the philosophy and having uh, people that know the philosophy are hugely important to the success of delivering a Ritz-Carlton experience to the guests. And, and I think the good thing is that, like any new hotel also, the scores in the beginning are peaks and valleys, right? That, that, that's Pretty typical because any operation that you open needs time to settle um, and, and establish itself. Yeah. And the good news on the Ritz Carlton Yacht is that now, what are we, eight, nine months in? I think nine months into this thing, the scores have settled. They're steadier, 
and they're increasing. Yeah, right. So, and that's really kudos to the team to make sure to continue to push um, the service values, standards, yeah, the product quality and stuff like that. And and you know, people ask me, well, how do you how do you ensure the supply? I said, the biggest problem is supply of ingredients, right? Or this, that's the biggest problem because you don't know what guests will order. Yeah. But you're not like a cruise ship, like, you know, Norwegian here in Miami. I'm in Miami currently, and, and they come in, they load up, they go out for six days, they come back in. This thing is moving from A to B to C to D to E to F to yeah. G, right? It continuously does this. And, and so how do you anticipate when you're running out of steaks? <laughs> yeah. And where do they need to be delivered? And how many do you need to have delivered? Well, and then the quality port? and, and are you getting the same quality? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's so, so I think that logistic piece is the biggest piece to figure out for them besides the labor piece. Uh, and I think they're getting better and better and better because it's a learning, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it is great to see um, that so much focus is being put on the culture side because you and I both know Ritz Carlton works as a brand because of the culture. Um, when, when the only thing that distinguishes, that's the only thing that the, the building is a building. The 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 the, the logo is a logo. Uh, you know, many of the senior leaders that I've worked with and for in my twenty years with Ritz Carlton um, always said the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, it it you know everybody has a great building. Everybody yeah. has. The latest amenity, everybody has the greatest designer involved into that project. Everybody does. How do you establish a culture of, of delivering? So, so we go back to what is luxury, right? I think this, you and I talked about what is luxury and, and how do you define luxury? Because the word luxury has been stretched. Oh. God. <laughs> Uh, in every industry, this word has been stretched, right? But if you go back to what it really means, it means deliver something that you can't get everywhere else, right? And, and so a bottle of water I can get everywhere. But the experience how the bottle of water is delivered to me by a friendly, genuine smile is, is what sets me apart, right? The, the functionality needs to happen no matter what. What is rare, because by definition, luxury means rare, hard to obtain, uh, expensive, right? Yeah. It, th- there's all these qualifications of what luxury means. And I think the biggest luxury in today's world is service. But genuine service, looking at the guest understanding what the guest likes, does not like, wants, when he wants it, she wants it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can deliver. Yeah, we always say, for me, my interpretation is the best way to, to help people understand is luxury is a feeling. Luxury is a feeling you're able to give. Because like you just said, getting the bottle of water, anyone can do that. How that guest feels when they get the bottle of water, that determines yeah. luxury or not. Yeah, so go from what I always used to tell everybody in the organization that I spoke to is, how do we get from transactional to experiential? Yeah. How do you take a burger, speaking as a chef, how do you take a burger from transactional to experiential? Now, in experiential, you still have to deliver the first part, right? The transaction, you still have to live a, I order a burger medium, I order it with jack cheese and I order it with whatever, salad and no fries, mm-hmm. what, whatever, whatever it is, right? So I still got to get the elements of the transactional right, because if I don't deliver the burger the way you want it cooked, I don't deliver it with the um, side order that you want or, or whatever, right? So now, now you got to sit yourself down and say, okay, so now I've got that right how do i take it to experiential yeah what can i do right can i make my own ketchup can i tell a story around the the patty can i tell a story around and storytelling is obviously a big part of all of this because today's world that materialistically people can afford anything 
um, they are, it's about experiences and storytelling. Yeah, couldn't agree more. What do you think? Th- what What do you think is is what's the next evolution of? We can't continue doing what we've always done. We know things are going to continue, progress, change, evolve. What is the next evolution? And let's stick because both of our world is on the hotel side. What is that next phase of luxury within the hotel segment? Like, what do you think is is going to be the new shiny toy that people are all, you know, clamoring around and, and trying to get their hands on or trying to execute in a certain way? Is it, are we going back to fine dining restaurants? Are we going to tasting menus? Are we, is it, is it going to stick with more of, you know, I, I think of, um, I was just at Ritz Carlton Grand Lakes and, you know, it was game changer when you, when Highball and Harpist was put in, right. Which was outside the box of what Ritz Carlton had done at that point, which is a little bit more of that casual luxury. What is the next evolution in the luxury space in your, in your opinion? So I think I, I go back to what I said earlier about the word luxury being stretched. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think the commod the commodity luxury that we're seeing um, is really it's it's exactly that it's commodity luxury, right? So well, like it, don't like it, whatever you want to say to it. The reality is in today's world. True luxury, again, we go back to rare, hard to obtain, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, true luxury, in my opinion, can't be delivered in a size bigger than roughly around 100 rooms. In a labor market that allows me to deliver luxury, meaning if I have to deliver luxury in its true sense of service and its true sense of everything there is a number of game at play here that we won't be able to to deliver luxury in a 300 room hotel where our labor model runs on one employee per room it, it won't work right it just physically not possible so i think you will see and we get to the culinary side in a second but from a hotel perspective what you're seeing already ritz carlton reserve Right, you're you're seeing the successes of one and only. You're seeing the successes of of um, other brands. Aman has been playing in that that area for a long time, right? Thirty, forty, fifty villas. That's it. Um, and then deliver what the guest wants, when the guest wants, where the guest wants. That I think is becoming more and more true luxury for the real wealth client guests that are out there where they can switch off where they can relax where everybody is just doing stuff at, at when they want it how they want it etc right so let me ask so i think that's on that because i'm i'm glad you said that and i'm very curious because you know originally when we talked about the, the ritz carlton brand it was lower guest room count um was originally kind of the the mindset and then owners that were getting involved wanted to, Oh my God, if I can get a little, I want more, right? That's the, that's all you think. How do I get more money? Well, if I get more money, I put more guest rooms. And I remember when I opened Grand Lakes, it was 584 guest rooms. It was the the biggest. Well, and it was the biggest outside of Singapore was the biggest hotel I ever opened. Yeah. Right. So, and, and I looked at that and I go, how much you just said that we need to continue to see those numbers come down to deliver the experience the guest is really looking for yeah. in that luxury space. Yet the owners are saying, well, wait a second. I, you know, a lot of these owners, I just, I want to see dollars. I want to see dollars. And there's almost a disconnect between some of the owners. And I, I think we find that more, I think on, in the West, um, of understanding luxury yes. and, and owning yes. a luxury brand versus, uh, a non-luxury brand. And I think, and I think this is where I was sort of going with this, right? So luxury hotels, what does, which brands do we consider true luxury and which are more in the stretch of the world of luxury? So if we look back in history and I've been around 43 years, so in the industry, um, and I have a theory and this is, purely based on my observation, not on any facts or figures. But 
if you look back in the 50s and the 60s, who were the luxury hotel companies? It was Sheraton, was the first luxury hotel company globally. That then become, became commoditized as, a, as a, a company as it was growing and extending its reach over a certain amount of hotels. Then Hilton took over. Hilton International took over, right? Uh, Hilton International grew over 100 hotels. Hilton International, Tokyo, Hilton International, Hong Kong were world-class luxury hotels for many, many years and considered to be the best of the best in the world. Uh, and that delivered incredible food, incredible service, incredible product. Um, and they were sort of the pioneers. Then Hilton sort of went away from the luxury space, right? Then Interconti took over for a short while. And then they went away. And then Ritz-Carlton in the 80s started to appear, right? Four Seasons started to appear. Uh, and a couple of other companies that are out there today still appeared. Some of them stayed true to what they wanted to be, be and stayed true to it at the detriment of development, right? So if you look at Peninsula, Peninsula today still has only nine hotels, right? So, and they stayed true to their core mission and vision of that organization. And, and my theory has always been, if you grow a hotel company over 100 hotels, your leadership structure will have to change because you will have to manage the business differently. But by doing that, you're going against a control of a business, right? So if we look at, let's go Ritz-Carlton specific within the Marriott context. Uh, Ritz-Carlton, when it was a pyramid organization on its own, LLC, running it with a President, CEO, COO, yep. leadership, every operational level. It ran very, very differently than it runs today in a matrix organization, right? Better or worse, yeah. to be debated by the higher powers. But I think the, the difference is that you can no longer control every project and every property as you could control it previously and have the relationship with, from the ownership to the operating team, being connected as closely with the overarching vision and mission, right? So, so the challenge really becomes for any organization, when you get to 100 hotels, ballpark, right? Might be 120, might be 130, might be 110, might be 90, who knows? The dynamics change. Yeah. And because of the business, the way the business is conducted and the change in dynamics, some of this influences the end result. Right? Yeah. And and in today's world, I think you 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 sort of said it earlier, I think the ownership involvement has completely changed. Oof. Uh, in, 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 and again, there's reasons for all of this, right? So any stock market listed company, be it Marriott, be it Hilton, be it Hyatt, be it whatever, whatever the brands are, mm -hmm. have to show to Wall Street value and growth, right? Very simple. By having to show value and growth, consistently over a long period of time to make sure that the stocks are delivering, um, each of the brands in the portfolio is looked upon as how do we can, how can we grow that brand? How can we grow that 400, the 250 room Ritz Carlton to a 500 room Ritz Carlton to make it more attractive to the owner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because we need to show this growth, uh, to deliver to, to Wall Street. And, um, by doing that, you are almost at the will of the owner and saying, hey, I want to give you my business, but you need to do this for me or you need to give me this exception or you need to give me, yeah. you know, I'm not going to spend, uh, I'm not going to spend, I don't know, whatever the number is, 550,000 a key on, on this project. I'm only going to spend 500. And then you as a management company have to say, okay, I can live with that. Yeah. Right. We'll, we'll make some compromises here or there. 
The problem is once the compromises <laughs> get, get from 550,000 to 350,000 and you're changing the product, that's a whole other conversation. No, no, there's been a right? shift in power. As a shift in power. And, 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 and I think every company struggles with that. The, whatever the international companies are, they all struggle with that. And then later on, trying to figure out how do you um, protect the brand or how to keep the brand integrity and how do you make sure that you still deliver against those, those promises that you made to the, to the guest uh, and, and then make sure the owner is happy, make sure flow through is right, making sure that, that all the matrixes are being met, right? And, that, and that's why it becomes interesting and challenging and, yeah. and sometimes to the point where you lose all your hair, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes there is success, right? Depending on, on who you're dealing with. So, yeah. and, and I think in today, and, 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 and there are some owners, and this is the other thing, right? In the West. And that's the biggest difference I have seen over my 10 years in corporate is if an owner is personally invested in a property because it's his or hers project, it's very different. It's a very different motivation for them to do what they think is the right thing to do versus a VC company um, yeah. trying to flip an asset in two years. Yeah. Right? The motivation is a very different motivation. And therefore, the ask to the management company is a very different ask. And that's what, obviously, no guest will ever understand. They're, neither should they, right? But, but yeah. that's hotel companies will, will figure out how to, how to make that transition work for the guest. But that's the biggest difference, right? Who is your investor? Who are you dealing with from the investor side? Yeah. Are there long-term owners or are there, are there organizations that, that look for short-term investments, asset or, or maximization and then flipping? Yeah. And I've, and I've walked out of meetings with owners that were only interested in flipping to the detriment of the organization or the detriment of the operation. Yeah, you got to protect and the brand. You, 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 you try, right? And, and, but, but I've walked out of meetings where it was very clear not on their agenda. Yeah. <laughs> so. What do you think the, um, as we are getting to the tail end of, of this conversation, I think we can do this probably once a month, you and I, and just continue conversations for sure. the next five years. Yeah, um, for, for you, your company on the design side, you know, what's that project that you're most excited about? Um, and where, where are you going right now uh, with, with the company? Yeah, so we never answered the food section of that last question, but that's okay. We can do it another time. We, um, that's so, all right. We didn't get to the food piece. I, I was so focused on the hotel side. <laughs> but but uh, we can get to the food. We're just going to talk about food another day. Uh, I think, so the most exciting thing is, is so doing stuff that you don't know anything about or little about and being exposed to something completely new and different. So the, the, the most exciting project I'm working on is a 1,800-room, five-star, all-inclusive product in Mexico by an independent owner without a brand affiliation. Wow. And the ownership group came to me and said, we need your guidance as to what type of food should we serve? What type of concept should we have? And then you tell us how to build the kitchens and the bars to support this mm -hmm. and give more generic advice around food and beverage and then tell us what we should buy for OSNA to deliver against this. And then, so first of all, I've never done an 1800-room hotel. I've never even looked at one other than as a guest mm -hmm. in one or two in the world, right? Because there aren't many that are that big, except in Vegas. Yeah. So, uh, but this is not Vegas. This is Mexico. Very different, right? 
So when we, when we started working on that project, I, I sort of immersed myself in the larger all-inclusive world for a couple of weeks and visited those places and was surprised that some of them do a really good job. Because I always thought all-inclusive is just crap, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> that was sort of my, my vision, right? And, and, and the reality was that it wasn't. Uh, and some of them doing a tremendous job. And, and within limits, sure, right? But, but and, and then get your head around these numbers. And then get your head around um, distribution and how, how to calculate. So the, the ask was no buffet. So four and a half thousand, five thousand guests, breakfast, no buffet. So I said to the gentleman, I said, I need to lock myself in a, in a, in a quiet space for like a day to think about how this might work. Right? Yeah. So we came up with sort of a market concept that, that, that is very similar to Wicked Spoon in Vegas um, mm -hmm. from a conceptual idea, right? So... Uh, and I can't wait for this thing to open and see what I got right and what I didn't get right. <laughs> because because I, I, I can theoretically tell you I think it's going to work great, but until this thing actually uh, opens its doors and, and yeah. has the first day with 4,000 guests and they're all trying to find food, we'll see. I'll be there. I'll be there looking at it. So... <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can't, I can't wait. This is, this is really exciting because this is so different and so new and so, and, and you got to really think, right? Speed of service, turnover, turn, turn tables. Uh, yeah. It's just, there's so many layers of this thing that you got to keep ice. Just think about ice. I do often. Ice, <laughs> ice distribution. Yeah, but ice distribution. How do you do this? Right. I tell you, you, it's um, I'm excited for you because I, I know there's so many of these, the hotel groups that are now starting to play into this space and they're pushing hard into this, the all-inclusive yeah. spaces. And so to see you doing it at a different level, that's going to push the envelope and change the norm of what we expect to see in those um, it's, yeah, I, it's cool that I get to have a front row seat next to you to, um, see you kind of change, well, hopefully we'll change, change the industry. Maybe not change the industry, but change the, the, the point of view. I think, I think really it's a point of view, right? Yeah. Because I, I, I'm doing another project right now, um, helping people. I said, I said, you've got all the stuff. You're just not doing it right. So I said, so, so what, what, are, what are the few things you need to do to just change the conversation? Because all you need to do is change the point of view. If you have an ingredient, it depends how you cook the ingredient, right? Yeah. It's not. Yeah. You can cook it cheaply or you can cook it nicely. So funny you say that. We actually did a project, uh, I guess it was last year, um, it, in Europe, I'll leave it at that to keep it as vague as possible. And they had nowhere. They, <laughs> they had a product. Um, a, they had a physical product that was one of the best I had seen um, in how it was designed and in theory what they wanted to do. When we got on property, what they were trying to execute was still in the exact same point of view that they've always done, yeah. always had for the past fifty right. years. And they could not change the mindset to say, wait a second, change the way you're looking at this because the product you have is absolutely unbelievable. But how yeah. you're trying to execute it is you're trying to pull it back into what it's always been versus pushing ahead to what it could be. And so, and I think that, that I've encountered a lot. I, I even encountered that a lot in my previous role. Yeah. Where you walked into a hotel and you say, well, have you looked at this? In a different perspective and they were like, no but we always have done it that way it was always this thing i would like to choke people right so we've always done it this way it doesn't mean that's the right thing yeah today or maybe it wasn't even the right thing to do when you started this but but um or sometimes it's the opposite i said let me look at what i remember ritz carlton sanya the pool and beach uh operation was a disaster and we went in there and we looked and said, just show me what it 
or how did it open? What was, you know, the opening menu, the opening? So just go back to this because whoever did this actually thought this stuff through. Just do what they were supposed to be doing in the beginning, right? But yeah. but you you've added so much stuff that wasn't relevant anymore. Um, so sometimes you have to go back to the original intent, and you find that it probably was better than what you're doing today. Yeah, true. Well, man, I um, I'm going to commit to I think once a month you and I scheduling a call because we sure. I have 30 more things for us to talk about. Um, but I can't thank you enough for letting us steal a little bit of your time. No, it's an absolute pleasure and happy to do it whenever you want. So if, if, um, well, we can talk about next time. I know. Well, actually we're going to, the next one, we will dedicate the entire time only talking about food. Uh, I have a ton of All questions right. around that. So we're just, I have a, I have segments. This is segment one hotel. And then next okay. one, we're going to food. And then I want, I'd love actually, I want to do one after that to talk about bar because I'd love to get your perspective from a chef's view on the beverage piece. So yeah. I promise to everyone that that's going to happen here shortly. So if people are looking for you, how can they find you? Uh, very simple on the hkb-designs.com website. Um, Insta, Reinhard Zingraven. Um, that's about uh, it. Or, or just... You know, Google. Google. <laughs> You'll find me. You'll find me. Google. Agreed. You will. You'll find me. Well, I, I thank you so much, my friend. Um, thanks for everyone that's tuned in today. If you're looking for us um, at Chris Adams underscore EAG or EllisAdamsGroup.com, uh, either one, uh, we have more fun stuff coming up. With We're going to be with Chef Reiner multiple times, so uh, be on the lookout for that. And we'll see everyone next week. <laughs>